0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Health insurance premiums, if we can call it health insurance at all, are rising faster than ever before, especially for young, healthy adults. Governments force men to pay for services that only women can—that only women need. Governments force perfectly healthy to pay into a pool for the critically ill. Governments force drug manufacturers to undergo decade-long trial periods that cost multiple millions of dollars and above and beyond uh, the research cost just to bring a product to market uh, that has the exact same identical compound, chemical compound, but may have a different delivery mechanism. doing this to invo- doing all of that just to avoid intellectual property suits that may arise because government allows companies to extend their patents on, on medicine forever and ever. You know, m- much of the elected officials, and I would argue most of the appointed officials in government have a self-righteously deemed a service, healthcare, performed by an individual that took a decade or more to develop the skills and knowledge necessary to deliver that service. They call it a human right. In doing so, what they're effectively justifying is the use of force to ensure that every individual receives said service. Ultimately, what ends up happening is where we are. We do not have a health insurance market anymore. Rather, catastrophic health insurance has been regulated out of existence and replaced with prepaid, nationally pooled health care. If you don't use it, you lose it, and you're compelled to buy it. The entire system was built off of the idea that healthy young people would pay significantly higher rates than normal in order to subsidize the elderly and at-risk people and those with pre-existing conditions. I kind of brought up earlier that the you know, government is forcing a bunch of things on us. One of the things that they force are nanny state provisions that have nothing to do with the risk of a single year, a one-year health insurance, monthly paid, you know, monthly premium paying health insurance term. Um, they have health insurance policies have one-year terms. So uh, putting an additional cost on a 20-year-old or a 22-year-old that smokes cigarettes, It it doesn't really make a lot of sense. If it was a lifetime term and it was a fixed-rate lifetime term, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, maybe that would make a little bit more sense. But it's a one-year term. That's part of the problem that we have. Further beyond all that, all sorts of weird counterproductive resource-restricting measures were built into the satirically named Affordable Care Act that will always and forever be tied to the Obama presidency whether it survives or not. Much of this, though, isn't even the worst part. The the restrictions throughout the sector drive the supply down and simultaneously constrain the ability for said supply to adapt dynamically to the needs of the moment. The prevention of a market mechanism from being allowed to work in the healthcare system is precisely why the costs keep getting higher. And even though more people are covered, fewer people get cared for ultimately. There's no better and more clearly destructive example in recent history of what cronyism and bureaucratic barriers to entry can do to inflict harm on the individual than the recent EpiPin saga. As many people know, seemingly out of nowhere, EpiPin consumer prices skyrocketed to over $600 per unit, or I guess the, the price of the insurance companies were paying for it. And the Foundation for Economic uh, Education, FEE, uh, released a, a really catchy video that I really like. It's it's of Congressman Mick Mulvaney of South Carolina lecturing the CEO of the company Mylan that creates the EpiPen. He's also somewhat lecturing the self-righteous members of Congress, and as he is actually quoted in the, in this video saying, um, you know, even some of the members from his own party, on the obvious and apparent conflicts of interest and the lobbying that must have led to the monopoly. That this one company has over the production of this drug, a drug that saves lives in the, in the event of anaphylactic shock as a result of an allergy. He also points out the fact that if this thing can be sold for 600 bucks a pen, it talks a little bit about some of the co- comparative costs of, of actually creating this EpiPen. costs about like a buck or something to make. Then why aren't hundreds of competitors rushing into the market? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and play the audio from this clip.
1: You can really charge $600 for it and people will pay for it. Why aren't more people rushing in to make the stuff so that they can get a piece of this huge market? Because it's too hard to get the darn stuff approved. And that's what I wish we were talking about. The same exact thing from the same exact manufacturer. I think you can get it over the counter in Europe for $75. One of the reasons, by the way, is that there's nine different people making the stuff in Europe. One of the reasons they can charge 300 or $600 is because it's too hard to get new products approved in this country. An EpiPen competitor would be even more difficult because it's both a drug and a delivery device. By the way, the stuff doesn't cost anything. It costs between like $0.10 cents and $0.95 cents a vial. It's really easy to make the stuff and really easy to get the stuff. But for some reason in this country, there's really only one provider. I wish we were talking about why myelin can charge six hundred dollars for this instead we talked about your profit margins with people who have no clue what that means we talk about a bunch of stuff that tries to make a lot of us look really good somebody in my own party said that there's no way you could really earn 18 million dollars a year that bothers me but at the same time miss brech you get what you deserve not because you're a bad person not because you're charging too much or too little for a drug nobody in here has any clue we don't understand the cost we don't understand the distribution system we don't understand how healthcare products get priced and sold and, and distributed to you what we do know though is that you've been in these hallways to ask us to make people buy your stuff. You've lobbied us to make the taxpayer buy your stuff. At the federal level we passed the law here. We did it by the way. I was here when we did it. Everybody was here when we did it. We did it in 2013. It went by voice vote. One of those magical things that happens when we're not on the floor. The White House called it the EpiPen Bill. My guess is that didn't happen by magic. It may have happened because your mother works for the State School Boards Association or whatever the group is. It may happen because your dad is a U.S. Senator. But you came and you asked the government to get in your business. So here we are today. I'm
0: your host, Andrew Smith. This is the Macro View. So I want to mention that you know, EpiPen is not the only one. You know, Many of you might know of Martin Shkreli who jacked up prices on an AIDS drug and, and also got himself into all sorts of other trouble as well. I'm not going to get into that, but it's not the only, it, it, this is not the only case of this happening. This happens with tons of drugs. It's just that the EpiPen is such a well-known thing because most people know somebody who has an allergy. There are hundreds of potentially life-saving drugs and treatments for illnesses that have no other cure that are being held up by the FDA. You know, th- things like the prevention of uh this has nothing to do with mean, this could easily be done. This has nothing to do with with f d a approval of a new drug or its efficacy or its uh you know safety but you know th- they prevent non family matching organ donors for things like bone marrow and Institute for justice did a whole case on you know this poor family whose child died because none of them were a matching were were a matching donor. And they're not allowed to have a non-family matching donor, even if they're willing to pay for it. There's no market for it. You know, I think somebody would, would say, yeah, I'd be willing to pay to keep my daughter alive. I'd be willing to pay a little bit of money to somebody who's willing to donate their their bone marrow. And it's a travesty that somebody should die when there's very... Die. They died because of it. Because we wouldn't allow them to undergo, you know, a... a, a bone marrow transplant from a non-family donor. It's insane. And the wealthy, they can go wherever they want. You know, they they go to places like Singapore, or Mexico where the healthcare systems actually align a little bit more closely with, you know, what an anarcho-capitalist envisioned system might look like, where you do have a lot of cash services. The services are pretty damn good as well. You also do have if you know if you're a resident there, and, and I'm assuming over time what will end up happening is they'll start exporting some of that. And uh, there's actually websites you can go to where you can find out the entire cost of what it would cost to go and get transplants that you probably won't get to because of the way the you won't get in America because of the way the system works. But you you could go to Singapore or other countries and you'll be able to get it. And you know, Singapore, it's, it's not a black market. They actually have a market for this stuff, a, a legal, legitimate, open market for this kind of these kind of medical procedures. And wealthy people, they're able to go and take advantage of them. They can just get on a flight and go and do it and pay the money and pay the cash if it's life savings. The real cost of healthcare is going down. The only reason we're seeing the cost go up is because of artificial demand on one end created by the use it or lose it prepaid healthcare system that drives prices up. And further consumers of health, healthcare have no clue what they're paying for. It's like paying kind of like for a mortgage or a student loan. The actual price point doesn't matter. What, what matters is the monthly payment. And naturally individuals purchasing these plans try to pay the lowest monthly pre- premium for the best possible plan that has a copay deductible combination. that will allow them to seek the treatment that they want and have coverage just in case, but they go and use it. Nobody is going to buy into a prepaid system with no intention of using it whatsoever. The issue is that every year when somebody has, has, has used their prepaid value worth of services, the premiums have to go up to compensate for the last year's losses. They have to go up even more so for the groups that use it the least and have the lowest premiums they have to go up even more so for those people to make the whole system solvent, to compensate for the people that use it more. And the last issue driving up costs is, is the tort issue. Like I said, it's the last issue. It's a very complex ma- matter, but there's some very surface level issues that could easily be, be fixed by a better market system. The tort issue is one of them that, that maybe needs to be legislated. But I think that a private system, uh, you know, for, for arbitrations in in, med- in in medicine would probably lead to a little bit more fair practice. And currently malpractice insurance for doctors is out of hand. The overhead cost, it it forces up the price of preventative care, forces up the price of surgery, forces up the price of vital tests. Real resources are used to conduct the tests and are being demanded more and more than they should be just for the doctor to be able to cover their own ass. It's not a good way to have a system that's affordable. Doctors know what they're doing. They're not going to not do a test if they they feel as though they need to do that test. But they do extra tests now just to avoid potentially being sued. There is cause for optimism, though. There is cause for optimism. So recently, I had an experience with an app called Heal, where I had gotten a little bit of a a, a sickness a while back, a a cough, and um, kind of felt like a bronchitis. And Heal is available on the entire West Coast, and eventually they will probably spread out across the country. And you can go download it. It's an app. And basically, a house called doctor for preventative care, for checkups, for, and for minor, minor illness and injury. And if you have insurance, it's whatever the co-pay is. If you don't have insurance, it's about 100 bucks. doctor comes right to your apartment or your house or whatever, you know, wherever you live. And um, like I said, they do routine checkups. You know, they do, uh, you know, minor injury and minor illnesses and they can, you know, write prescriptions for you so that if you, you know, if you need to go get a prescription. And innovative solutions for certain parts of the healthcare system like this will help to drive down costs, but they can only do so much. So the question is, how do we actually solve it? And what would a healthcare system look like in and Kapistan, you know, in an anarcho capitalist utopia. What would that look like? You know, with, with in a stateless society, how would people wouldn't there just be people dying on the street? I mean, I'm not going to get into to all the deepest arguments about how and why that would not happen. But essentially, there wouldn't be legislation. Ultimately, you'd have private certification associations or something like that. And, you know, they would license and certify medical professionals and they'd require certain standards to be a member of their association. And you have insurance policies for the operators, for the medical professionals. They'll cover them for malpractice. And as a result of re- assuming the risk, reinforce some of those standards, which would drive down the price of the malpractice when those standards are, standards are met over and over again. And the certification associations are already imposing these standards. So it's really a reinforcement by the insurance companies just to make sure that they're not going to end up losing that money. And for consumers, there would be no one size fits all. You have some cash services. You'd have insurance coverage for catastrophic care, which would be based on risks. And likely in Ancapistan, it would probably be based on genomic research advances and DNA-related risks that we're able to know about. Healthcare plans would be able to likely be purchased for terms much longer than a single year, potentially even lifelong terms. And this would allow a fixed cost throughout someone's life while covering them indefinitely in the event of a catastrophic or critical illness or chronic chronic illness or catastrophic injury or critical injury. And I mentioned earlier kind of the self-righteous virtue signaling and nanny state stuff that happens, you know, in, in a man with, with mandated price setting requirements based on certain things, you know, I, I gave the scenario of somebody who's young, who's buying a one year plan who smokes and that, that smoking for a one year plan is not really a significantly increased risk later in life. It might, if it were a life lifelong term insurance, it, it would be accounted for in the actuary tables for a single year. It would depend on their age and likely the DNA and other aspects of uh, and other factors that would come into question that would you know, give actuaries a good, you know, good uh, idea of how to price out that specific risk for that individual. And for catastrophic care, depending on the customized plan, the cost would likely be relatively cheap for consumers. The premiums that they pay would be relatively cheap. And there would be all sorts of opportunities for insurance companies to get more creative in their offerings and to use premium payments and longer-term plans and and wider, more flexible pools. Then they'll be able to cover pre-existing conditions. They'll be able to, to invest the money in, in ways that you know, they'll be able to work out payment plans with some of the doctors that they have on, on their plan that will allow them to kind of maybe pay 90 days out so they're able to capture a little bit more interest off of their investment. So they're able to manage their, their, uh, you know, their, their asset side of, of their book. And for an insurance company, the liabilities, you know the assets are the premiums and the investments that they make from those premiums. The liabilities are the claims that they have to pay out. So make that the asset side a little bit more flexible for some of the insurance companies, and there would be all sorts of private, individually worked out contracts that would make it work. It would work in the interest of the consumer. It would work in the interest of the operator. It's not a zero sum game. Everybody would benefit. If you couple that with a reduction or elimination in some cases, although in Andkapistan. You know, people may think, oh, well, you have these mad scientists creating bacteriums. They'll, they'll be releasing and killing everybody with biological warfare. Obviously, there is, you know, that would be violating the non-aggression principle. And there is a certain right for a community, local community, with everybody opting in voluntarily to set rules and standards and say, look, you know, we don't want any of this going on. We don't want you running a science lab in you know, in your, your garage, that, that can be worked out in small groups of people coming together voluntarily. And I think most people would agree on that. And you'd have medical research properties that either people that want to do medical research would buy, or you'd have real estate owners that found it as a attractive investment to own it and lease it out to people doing medical research. And uh, if you couple, what I was talking about with the consumer and the operator landscape with a reduction in the barriers to, to entry into the market, the medical technology developments that are right on the brink. There's a number of them out there that are right on the brink. They'll, they'll get over the brink and they'll become a reality. And then once they prove their concept out as a business, they'll be able to raise capital and make the capital investments necessary to produce more units at a lower cost per unit, sell it at a lower price per unit, and more people will then be able to afford it. Naturally, every new advancement begins as a luxury. The beauty of the free market system and of capitalism and of free enterprise and competition, the beauty behind that is that very quickly, competition sets in and tries to turn that luxury into a commodity and it does so by accepting lower profit margins it does so by and trying to attract larger volume it does so by making capital investments in technology that allows them to produce more units at a lower cost per unit make employees and make labor more productive make those capital investments that make labor more productive it allows them to to pay higher wages which then attracts Better employees that will be more productive or or will find ways to make their labor, their own labor more productive or will contribute to new and better ways to deliver a service or a product. That's how you get luxuries being turned into commodities. You've got to have a free and open competition so that entrepreneurs say, hey, if this person's charging a little bit too high, they're making certain profit margin. I'm going to come in, I'm going to undercut them a little bit or I'm going to make more capital investment, be able to charge a lower price, maybe even make the same profit margin. There's a bunch of weighted way ways to do it, but you've got to leave that up to the individuals out there that see price signals and they're able to then take those price signals and interpret it as I can allocate resources to this industry and be able to make a profit by charging less than and delivering more to a larger group than the competitor. I want to leave everybody with this final little thought experiment. I want you to ask yourself, do you enjoy hearing sad, tragic stories? Do you wish someone could do something about it? If you answered yes to both of those questions, and you also believe that there are millions of people that would answer that that way as well, you must then believe that people go into industries like ...pharmachemical and biomolecular studies, that people that go into those industries do so for a reason. People that study the medical profession want to be able to care for and help every person. While I don't have numbers in front of me right now to prove this out, I would not doubt for a second... ...that when time and money donations are accounted for, doctors and medical professionals in general do more charitable work and make more charitable donations than any other profession lumped as a group. If you count time uh, that they donate as, as in, in the lump of donations without government, without government in the way human creativity will be allowed to flourish and the individual will gain access to the most incredible health care at a quality-adjusted, ever-decreasing price instead of an ever-increasing price. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash themacroview, Twitter at themacroview. Also, don't forget to check out our websites, macroviewnews.com, macroviewnews.com. Macroviewnews is all one word. If you click the link at the top right on that website, it says The Macro View, you'll find our blog there where you can scroll down. You can find past episodes and other blog posts that I write. And on the front, I've got a number of different uh, really strong, great, liberty-oriented news sources aggregated into one location for you. So you don't have to go through the web finding your news stories. They kind of all pop up right there. So check that out. Let me know what you think. Give me some feedback, whether it's on Facebook or on Twitter, um, or you can find, find uh, the email button on our website, and you can shoot me an email. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Andrew, Andrew Smith, signing off until next time. Hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. I'll be back on Monday.